welcome to Jersey Guys Sports, your sports talk home for the Yankees, the Giants, the Rangers, and the Rutgers Charlotte Knights, and I'm your host, Don. Thanks for listening. Now, today I'm going to be talking about the Yanks getting a reality check and a spanking by the Tampa Bay Rays, and we're going to do a quick Rutgers football preview. Let's go ahead and get started. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the Yanks. And as the Yankees continue to linger in last place in the American League East after getting blown out 8-2 in the opening game at home on Thursday night to the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays, by the way, look kind of all-world. But this was a reality check for the Yankees who needed to get woken up. And the Yankees were kind of high on their own supply after beating up on the lowly Oakland Athletics. Now, when the Yanks beat up on the A's, the A's, you got to know, are Major League Baseball's worst team <clears throat> by a large margin. I mean, as of the 12th, the, the Oakland A's were 8-30. and 30. Then they ranked last in just about every single offensive and defensive category. So the Yankees sweeping them is indicative of absolutely nothing. You know, they should have beat them all three games. And they did beat them all three games. And there was all these raves and positives and this. And I'm cracking up because, you know, you knew what was coming. And certainly, quickly enough, th- Thursday night it did. You know, in the first game against a real team, and by the way, a really good team in the Rays, the Yanks looked dreadful again. Now, all of the same issues surfaced that we've seen, you know, this year and most of the recent years, right? A lack of hitting against a good race starting pitcher. Rasmussen, by the way, pitched for uh, Tampa, and he looked friggin' great. But again, the Yanks could not put anything together. Um, now, obviously, the A's have no pitching or anything else. So, of course, the hitting looked great against the A's, and there was all this talk and dialogue about the hitting and this, and look at that. And <clears throat> sure enough, against a really good team and a really good pitcher, nothing. So, lack of hitting. Bad defense, again. Now, this time, believe it or not, it was Rizzo, who never, ever makes errors. But he had one bobble with two outs. The guy beat it out to first, and sure enough, the next batter, double, and it was one nothing. And I can't even believe it was Rizzo. But uh, it's never normally Rizzo. But this team consistently, consistently plays bad defense. Normally, it involves Glaber Torres. Occasionally, not occasionally. Uh, also, it's Aaron Hicks, and occasionally it's other people. But you can count on the Yankees making at least one bad defensive play every single game. And it's intrinsic in this team. It's part of a cracked infrastructure that is this Yankee team. And it happened again last night. And you cannot make these kind of errors. Now, obviously, this game ended up being a blowout. But it was 0-0 at that time in the fifth inning when it happened. So it was not, you know, late in the game. It was... You know, a a 0-0 game in the fifth inning with two outs, and and that's it. So, um, And her mom was pitching tremendously, which leads me to another item that always, always presents itself. Right? We have lack of hitting. You have bad defense again. And now the third thing, another dumb defensive decision, pitching decision, I should say, by Aaron Boone. Another dumb pitching decision by Aaron Boone. He has already assured himself, by the way, Aaron Boone, <clears throat> first ballot Hall of Fame status on the all-moron club. And it, again, had to do with Domingo Herman. You might remember Boone famously pulling, you know, Herman, who was brilliant out of a game in the ninth inning after giving up 
just his second hit of the game, right? A week or two ago. Pimron pushed a brilliant, brilliant game. He had a one-hit shutout going into the ninth inning. Had the goal to actually give up a hit with one out in the ninth. And, and he pulled him, and the Yanks lost the freaking game. Boone did it again two days later, right? And the Yanks ended up coming back and win that other game, pulling a pitcher who was just brilliant. And now in this game, uh, this is Thursday night, Herman again was cruising along, making the Rays look silly. He gave up only one earned run over six full innings, just about six full innings, one out away. You know, and that was, and the one run was, again, we talked about it. It was Rizzo making the error and he gave up a double and that was it. That was a one-earned run. He was mowing the Rays down, making them look silly. Her mom was in complete control, and it was the sixth inning with two outs and nobody on, and he walked someone. Now, God forbid he gave up a walk. Again, Herman again, was looking brilliant. Gives up a walk with two outs in an inning. So, of course, Boone, God forbid, has to come right out with the hook, and a one nothing game became a 4 nothing game in about a minute and a half. This time, the normally reliable Marinaccio was the culprit. But, I mean, the story here is Boone and his pattern of just closing his eyes and having absolutely zero feel for the game. It is, it is bordering on incredible, and I say this every time, how you can be a manager and be, you know, 50, 100 feet away from the game and not see what everyone in the world is seeing. Her mom was brilliant again. And he has the goal to walk someone. And that is enough for, for Boom. Because he's looking at some analytic, some ridiculous metric. Whatever it is that Boone is doing, he's obviously not looking at the game. Now, you know, who knows what would have happened. But we see this pattern over and over and over and over again. And it's something I said at the beginning of the season when Boone and Cashman were not let go and rehired that it would be Groundhog's Day and we're seeing it already over and over. How many times this year already has Boone pulled somebody early and, and the game gone bad? He cannot see what's in front of him. He looks at a little book, lefty, righty, you know, how many pitches, you know, whatever the tendencies are, and he doesn't look at what's right in front of him. Herman was brilliant. But again, we can't know what would have happened had he let, you know, Herman in. But what I do know is this. It was a one nothing friggin' game with two outs in the sixth inning. That's what I know. I know sure as hell, I guarantee you, it would not have been 4 nothing at the end of the sixth had he left Herman in. I don't know what would have happened, but I'm telling you it would not have been 4 nothing, and it certainly wouldn't have been 8 nothing by the end of the seventh inning. I mean, are you telling me that if he let Herman pitch four more outs, one more out in the sixth, and three more outs in the seventh, is there any chance it would have been eight nothing, which is what it was? I mean, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, I, I don't know what to say about Boone, right? So we, three things surfaced that are continuing, right? So this lack of hitting, bad defense, another dumb pitching decision by Boone, and maybe the last thing, which is a lesser thing, but is still impactful on the Yanks overall. It's the continued sort of musical chairs with the lineup and positions by Boone. And no one ever gets comfortable anywhere because the lineup and the defense are always changing. I, I mean, I kind of feel like it's Gallant and the Rangers here with the shifting lines every day, every period. 
I mean, with the Yanks, every day it's a different lineup. People are in different positions. Part of that is because Cashman has, you know, seven infielders for four positions. Um, but the outfield changes, the infield changes. And I'm not talking about just injuries here. I'm talking about when people are here. It's constant musical chairs, right? No one gets position between Boone's whims and this friggin' horseshit that they call load management. You never know what to expect on any given day, right? So you have lack of hitting, bad defense, another bad pitching decision, and continued musical chairs again, again, again. Uh, you know, another thing, too. This ridiculous sitting people under the guise of quote-unquote load management just drives me batshit crazy. Load management is not for last-placed teams. I mean, I hate friggin' load management for all teams. But if you have to rest people, you do not do it. When you're in last place and nine games out of fucking first, you all play, balls to the wall. If you miss the damn playoffs, what the frig good would load management have done anyway? In my mind, it's ridiculous for just about all teams all the time. With the exception of maybe, I don't know. If you're if you're in first place by 10 games in September or something, and you want to give Judge or Stan or some older guy a rest for a day, that's fine. But outside of that, play your fucking people every day. Load management is not for last place teams. They're in danger of just falling out of this race here, right? They're nine fucking games out of first place, and it's, the, it's May. You cannot be having load management. Give me a fucking break. The Yankees are now nine games behind the Rays heading into Friday night, and they're kind of in need of, we'll see, some kind of adrenaline shot, but Groundhog's Day over and over. All right, that's all I have to say about the Yanks. Let's uh, do a quick discussion about uh, the outlook for Rutgers football. So for Rutgers football, there wasn't too much to note or see during Rutgers' annual spring game back in April. It was kind of a rainy day, and all the reporting was that, you know, they really didn't show much, and what they did, they didn't really look particularly good. So it wasn't what you wanted to hear, nor was it really much information to go on. But this year, I wanted to discuss, you know, the possibility of improvement, what we think can or can't happen. The, the success of the team this year for Rutgers football may rest solely on the back of quarterback Gavin Wimsett and how he progresses, if he does at all. Now, Wimsett, it's hard to say he's been anything other than a huge disappointment so far. I had such high hopes for him, and there were such glam, glamorous reviews of him in high school and his big arm and you know all of his tools, but he's been completely and wildly inaccurate almost all the time. I mean, at times looking almost lost and making bad decisions. And it's hard to say, you know, if it's salvageable or if it's not. He certainly has a big arm. We know that. He certainly can run um, and he can throw on the run. But he needs to be accurate. And it's been my mantra since the beginning of time. And you hear different things from different analysts, both from high school to college to pro, saying, you know, there's all these different things. Can a quarterback do this or do that or do this or do that? And even on NFL broadcasts, you hear the only thing he has to improve is his accuracy. He's great at this or that. And for me, you know, it's like saying the only thing this person has to do to survive is learn how to breathe. Like that accuracy is absolutely everything for a quarterback. And I mean everything. It is everything. Everything else is secondary. If you're not accurate, you're a bad quarterback. It doesn't matter if you're tall. It doesn't matter if you can run. It doesn't matter if you make 
good decisions, right? It doesn't matter anything else, right? None of that other shit matters. You know, it doesn't matter if you're good with pocket management, you know where to run. That's all great. But if you keep throwing the ball wild, none of it matters, right? If you're accurate, then most of that other stuff doesn't matter. Certainly it can improve you, all that other stuff. But the top most critical piece of being a quarterback is your accuracy. And Gavin Wimsatt has a problem with that. Now, how much of that is just from him? How much of that is from Rutgers receivers not getting open? How much of that is from bad route running? How much of that is from bad play calling? Lack of protection? Not being able to move around the pocket? Not having plays called that are sort of quick releases? That is unknown at the moment. But when you see a quarterback enough, over and over, you kind of see trends. And when I watch Gavin Wimpset, I do see a quarterback that's inaccurate, and we're going to have to see some drastic improvement in him if the team's going to have any kind of modicum of success this year. Now, what qualifies as a success for Rutgers football this year is also up in the air, right? Because, as we know, Rutgers is in the toughest division of the toughest conference in college football, right? Which I would also argue about the basketball team. Toughest division of the toughest conference in college basketball, both in football and in basketball. And in football, let's face it, we're in the same division as Penn State, as Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, I'm not going to go on. It's it's very, very hard. We have to play these teams every year. So it's a long hill to climb. And he has been a disappointment, Wimpsat, and we're going to have to see how far he goes. Now, a couple other bits here. Sam Brown should be back. He was a really good running back who played really, really well, got hurt in the Indiana game. He should really help our running game. Next year, by the way, in 2024, we do have an accurate quarterback entering the program with A.J. Sirachi, and I can't wait for that. But this year, Wimsap is the key for any improvements. We have another year with a new offensive coordinator, by the way. Kirk uh, Jiraka from Minnesota. And by the way, this makes 11 of the last 13 years now that Rutgers has a new offensive coordinator. 11 years of the last 13 years, Rutgers has a new offensive coordinator. Let that sink in. How is anyone supposed to get used to anything when you continually have a revolving door of offensive coordinators? Now, this year it was warranted because, oh my God, Sean Gleason was just awful, awful. He started out so well, um, and they needed to to replace him by the end of the year because the offense was just so dreadful. Not necessarily because of Gleason, but Gleason certainly contributed to how bad the offense was. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Shiraka is a play caller, and I'm assuming he's going to call plays for Rutgers since the play calling has been just insanely bad after, you know. Well, the, the first year with Sean Gleason, I thought the play calling was tremendous. Pretty inventive, a lot of unconventional stuff. And really, it looked different. Sean Gleason looked like, wow, we found an offensive coordinator. And then it was completely downhill from there. Now, we know Chiraka had some success. He's the new offensive coordinator for Rutgers. He had some success at Minnesota. Um, We'll see now if Rutgers' offensive line is good enough to mimic some of that success. Now, again, having Sam Brown, you know, back will certainly help because uh, Chiraka ran – really well, you know, at Minnesota. His team had a tremendous running game. And us having Sam Brown back, along with some of the other folks, we have a, we have a lot of good running backs, but do we have enough offensive line, you know, 
positivity here to to open anything up and will play calling be inventive enough that holes will be open how well can Chiraca help the development of on Wimsat? That also remains to be seen. Chiraca did have a hand in developing Joe Flacco, believe it or not. And he spent time at Delaware and he had a hand in the progression of you know, Minnesota's quarterback, Tanner Morgan, who ended up being a pretty decent quarterback there. So we'll see. Again, you know, prior success isn't always an indicator of future success. So we're going to have to see how Chiraca does at Rutgers. We're going to see. Now, obviously, it's not just the offense, but that's really what, you know, it's going to be eye-opening for Rutgers fans. Now we'll see. The defense and special teams will be a question mark as well. We lost some key people. Christian Izian is gone. He signed with the Bucks. <clears throat> Adam Corsak, our great, great punter, is gone. And that's going to sting badly. We also lost defensive back Christian Braswell. You might remember him. I thought he was pretty good. He was actually drafted in the sixth round. I thought Braswell was a good defensive back. Uh, wide receiver Sean Ryan. And Avery Young, defensive back. They're undirected free agents, not on Rutgers anymore. You know, as Yogi says, it's getting late early around here, right? Now it's time for Shannon to kind of start molding this team. Um, it's been here a few years now. It does take a long time in football. It takes way longer than basketball to get better. So that whole keep chopping mantra, you know, better start felling some trees so far. What I want to see to wrap this up, I'm going to see some offensive direction. Whether Wimsat ends up being any good or not, I want to see some development from him. I want to see him improve. I want to see a structured offense, you know, maybe some screens, draw plays, and some quick throws, you know, those wide receiver screens that everyone else but Rutgers seems to be able to run quickly and effectively. Um, I want to make it easier for Wimsat. We'll see if Shrock is able to do that. Some structure, some good play calling, and some consistent offense. Now, time will tell, and I'm going to check back in at the start of the season or maybe just before it to see if there's uh, any kind of indicators and any improvement along this Rutgers team. So let's go argue. That's really all I have for you today, guys. I want to thank you for listening to Jersey Guy Sports. Please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends all about it, and I'll be back soon with some more sports talk. Thanks, and have a good day.